The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Picking up on this thing on Biblical Greek, uh, I don't have, um, <clears throat> there's not a great deal more that, that I want to say in class because I think that the, um, the last section of the article, beginning with, beginning with page 14, is uh, fairly straightforward. Um, let me just point out that <clears throat> the reason I wrote this thing was number one, that uh, normally I can find some articles in dictionaries or whatever that summarize the state of the discussion fairly well. It is not as easy to find something on, on this topic that at least takes into account some of the more recent developments in linguistics and that kind of thing. And uh, secondly, uh, that there was this specific question which has exercised the, um, the minds of scholars for quite a while whether or not the language, the Greek language of the New Testament ought to be viewed as a distinct dialect that is distinct from other forms of the Greek language. And that, you know, is the, the debate that um, uh, I have tried to summarize even in the title there uh, of the third section, Deisman or Turner, because these two have been prominent um, uh, scholars espousing opposite viewpoints. Now, Deismann, of course, lived at the end of the last century, the beginning of this century, and uh, it is he primarily who is associated with the view that the Greek of the New Testament is simply the koine of, uh, of ancient times, of the first century. Uh, Deismann did not deny that uh, there are certain distinctives in that language. Of course, any language if you take um, a particular group of people who have common interests, their language is going to reflect those distinctives, and, and that's partly what you find in the New Testament. Also, undoubtedly, since most of the writers of the New Testament were either a native Aramaic-speaking people, or at the very least were influenced by that language, you're bound to see uh, a greater incidence of some of these foreign influences, if you will, than you might in other Greek writing. Deismann would have never denied any of that, but he argued that these distinctives were not sufficient to set the language apart from the rest of uh, the, uh, the Greek language, any more than you would set it apart from, that, that say you, you might set apart the language, the Greek language as it was spoken in Ephesus, uh, from the one in uh, Alexandria, from the one in, in Syria, all of those would have distinctives. And if you are very precise about it, surely you would want to make certain kinds of dialectal distinctions in the sense in which a modern linguist might do it. There is Philadelphia English, and there is, you know, L.A. English, and Chicago English, and so on. But, but you wouldn't say that these are um, distinct dialects in the way in which other scholars used to use that term, as though it required a separate grammar or something like that. Now, in, um, in other words, what I'm saying is that I'm, as I hope was obvious, that I very much side with Deismann on this question than I do with Turner. And um, you have some of the evidence uh, given to you in, in, in the paper. Uh, do keep in mind that um, in this section of the article, I try to, again, summarize how the New Testament language is, is distinctive from other uh, writings, Greek writings. And I spend a little bit of time, a few paragraphs, on, the, on that very interesting question of Semitic influence on the language of the New Testament. At least I think it's interesting. I did my doctoral work on that, so I better like the subject, 
But um, the point is that whenever two languages come in contact, you're going to have some uh, evidence of that in the language. And in particular, you might note um, page uh, 18, uh, where I say there in, in the first main paragraph, uh, the influence of Hebrew and Aramaic on Palestinian Greek is most clearly seen in the vocabulary, which changes more quickly and easily than other aspects of language. The point is that um, the phonology, also the syntax, all, every aspect of language changes over the uh, course of time, whether or not there's some influence from, uh, from other languages. But it is the vocabulary, more than anything else, that uh, quickly changes from, from year to year, certainly from generation to generation. And also, when there is contact with another language, uh, interference becomes uh, more prominent in the area of, uh, of the vocabulary. And then I distinguish between three um, ways in which uh, the, the vocabulary might be affected. One of them is what we call a simple loan word, uh, where you just you know, borrow a word from the other language and use it, maybe because your language does not have a specific word to describe some cultural detail. And I mentioned the example in English, you know, we, we might use the term sombrero. Why? Because there is a specific type of hat that uh, if you want to distinguish it from other uh, forms, you might use the Spanish term as a clear way of, of indicating what you have in mind. And a uh, couple of the examples, uh, such as Abba, Father, from Aramaic, or Pascha, for the Passover, and so on, that's fairly obvious, and there are not really that many. However, there is a second uh, type, which is often referred to as a loan translation. A loan translation. Here what happens is that there is a particular phrase used in the other language. And um, you now translate the phrase directly into your own language and that is kind of a borrowing as well but it is not a borrowing in the sense that you simply take the word in its actual shape that is its, its phonological shape and you adopt it in your language no you use native words but a strict translation of the phrase and so a skyscraper you know, there are several languages that have borrowed that, that combination um, which came from the U.S. when all these tall buildings uh, were being uh, built. So in Spanish you say rascacielos, you know, something that scrapes the sky. Uh, same thing. You're not saying, you see, if, if this were a, um, a loan word, rascacielos, it wouldn't be rascacielos, it would be in Spanish a skyscraper. You see? <laughs> that would be a loan word. But what you're doing is translating that combination. Uh, and that's what, and you have quite a few interesting examples. The one that I give you here is this phrase, to lift the face, which is a Hebrew way of indicating partiality towards someone. And so you have that same combination, prosopon uh, lambanin, in Greek. That's a loan translation. But the most interesting, I think, example of, of uh, interference in the vocabulary is what is called a semantic loan, a semantic loan. Here, you're not borrowing the phonetic shape of the word, nor are you translating a, a, a phrase or a particular word combination. What's happening here is that you identify a native word with the foreign word and after a while in your conversation, whatever, you allow the native word to expand its use or shift its use somewhat 
corresponding to the use of the foreign term. You see, normally, except in the case of very technical terms and that kind of thing, uh, if you go to the dictionary and, and use you know, Spanish or French or whatever, and you look at a, an English word and the equivalent in French, let's say, almost never is the equivalence absolute. The use of the term in the two languages is going to be at least a little different. There, there are going to be certain contexts where you use one but not the other. You know, this is so many, many examples of this. Um, I don't know whether you were familiar with the um, song a long time ago, Dark Eyes. In Spanish, it was Ojos Negros, which literally speaking means black eyes, but it's not very romantic to talk about a black eye, you see. So you translate to dark eye. Now, strictly speaking, black in, in English corresponds to negro in Spanish, but there is that slight difference, you see. In, in certain contexts, you wouldn't use black in English where you use negro in Spanish. And, uh, but if you started doing that, you see, let's say if, if English, influenced by Spanish, began to use black in that way or vice versa, then you would have a semantic loan. It's a, uh, a stretching, if you will, of, of the term in the native language under the influence of a different use in the foreign language. And so um, the, um, there are a number of examples. Uh, for, uh, I guess the one that I give you here is uh, doxa, which in classical Greek meant opinion, either the opinion that you have of somebody else or the opinion that somebody has of you, which might mean more like a reputation. But the Septuagint translators, when they saw the Hebrew word uh, that I have here, kavod, and for some reason they used doxa to translate kavod, and in the course of time, the Greek doxa, you see, began to take on the nuances of the Hebrew kavod, and so now we translated glory. But if you go to Greek literature prior to the New Testament, you're not going to find any text, or prior to the Septuagint, rather, you're not going to find any text where doxa means something like glory. It means opinion, or it means reputation. And there are a number of other examples like that. For instance, uh, uh, thalassa, which means lake, uh, which means sea, rather. In the New Testament, it is used with reference to the lake of uh, Galilee, uh, which even in English we call the Sea of Galilee, but that's, that's only as a name. If you were there in Israel, you, would, you probably wouldn't call it the sea, you would call it the lake. But because of the use of, in, in Aramaic, of the term yama. Uh, with reference to a lake, you find Thalassa by itself, not, not only with the title uh, Sea of Galilee, but just Thalassa when referring to the lake. Uh, or Artos, which means bread in the more general sense of food, and so on. Yeah. So, is that because Greek has no word for lake? No, 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 no. Limne. But here you have, Limne is the word for lake in Greek. But here you have... Um, the Jews, say, who, whose own language uh, was Aramaic, and they're used to calling this, the, uh, the Lake of Galilee Yama. Now, they know that Yama in Aramaic corresponds to Thalassa in Greek. And because of the influence of their native language, they start calling this lake Thalassa because of Yama. And so... The, the term thalassa gets expanded in the context of that uh, influence. Now, um, then I conclude, you know, talking about whether or not biblical Greek is sacred. And uh, there is this problem, you know, of identifying the form in which the New Testament is written, namely the, the, the Greek with the content, the sacredness of the content. And I think we need to be um, very careful about that. 
you're not denying that the Greek would have been influenced by, by the power of the gospel, of course. And, and, and again, this would be true even in other contexts. If you have a very um, influential <coughs> philosophy or some significant cultural development, it is going to, to influence the language. No one denies that. But uh, I don't think you want to think of, of, the, of New Testament Greek as belonging in a different category, you see. Uh, it's not totally human language. It's something more than that. Um, any more than if, uh, if the New Testament apostle writes, you know, Paul writes a letter to the Romans, all of a sudden the, the papyrus that he's using becomes sacred. No, it's still papyrus. It is not some heavenly object. Uh, and it does not become a heavenly object when he's writing the letter to the Romans. It's still part of, of the culture and so on. Um, but you see, that does not af affect in any way uh, the divine origin of the message that is being communicated through that language. Well, um, let me just pause right there and see any questions that you may have on the topic. Yeah. Um. When the New Testament writers were writing, how much influence did the Septuagint have on their writing? Um, a lot of influence, but I think we need to be careful, careful in, in uh, defining, uh, what shall I say, the, um, the categories of language influenced by the Septuagint. Um, in, in one respect, the influence was enormous. However, that influence is primarily in, in the area of style. In the same way, for instance, that the King James Version influences the style of people who write religious documents or preachers and so on. But that is not to say that the Septuagint was very influential in the actual structure of the language, that is, the, the way that the language is put together and, and the grammar and the syntax, so that, for example, and that's one of the points that I make here, that there are some books in the Septuagint that were translated so literally that the syntax is jarring for a Greek speaker. And I think uh, you don't find that sort of thing in the New Testament, number one, and you certainly wouldn't find it among, uh, in the actual conversation of people in Palestine. I don't care how familiar they were with the, uh, with the Septuagint. But you might see that influence in, in, in idioms and in terms of phrase and in the use of the more technical religious vocabulary, that kind of thing. Uh, so you want to be careful because, um, and also the Septuagint is very influential in the sense that, you know, very frequently, most of the time when they quote the Old Testament, they're using uh, the, the text of the Septuagint. Uh, so you don't want to minimize the significance of that, but also uh, be careful not to extend it to areas where I don't think it applies. Atticize wouldn't be the, um, the right uh, word there because even in the Attic period, you don't have eight cases. Uh, it's, it's really the result of comparative philology once you see that um, Greek was organically or genetically related to Sanskrit, and Sanskrit had eight cases, and Latin has six, um, and then you, you, you begin to look for a certain use of the dative, which is different from another use of the dative, and then you might be able to trace that distinction to a formal distinction in cases in a prehistoric stage of the Greek language. And uh, because there was so much um, emphasis placed on this kind of comparative approach at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, one of the best-known grammar books you know, by A.T. Robertson uh, worked on the basis of that eight-case distinction. And that was so influential, in particular in theological um, education, that uh, many, many people adopted it. I don't think it is the, uh, the most accurate way of, of looking at, at Greek, not even in the, in the Attic, in the classical period. But, um, but there's still a little bit of controversy about that. Other questions?
Okay, let's move on then to translation, translating the Bible. The bottom of page 9 in the syllabus, I have a little section uh, where I try to summarize the, uh, the history of Bible translation. And I don't want to say an awful lot about this, simply to, you know, sensitize you to the fact that when people translate the Bible today, this is not a modern phenomenon. This, this has a long, long history. Uh, as I think uh, we discussed, the Septuagint may have been the first major translation of a literary, of a long literary document to another language. And the way the Septuagint was um, produced significantly influenced the history of Bible translation from that point on at almost every level. Uh, whenever people sat down to translate the Bible, whether it be the Old Testament or the, or the New Testament, into another language than the original language, the the, the uh, principles or the criteria or whatever you want to call it, philosophy of translation that you find in the, in the Septuagint uh, was going to influence people from that point on. Very, very soon after the completion of the New Testament, there were uh, attempts to translate the New Testament to languages other than Greek. Uh, the three earliest uh, and most important versions were uh, the Latin version, versions, because there were more than one actually, the Latin versions, the Syriac versions, and the Coptic versions. Now we're going to talk about those versions later in the context of uh, textual criticism. I mentioned this here only uh, to remind you again that uh, the translation of the New Testament goes back to a very, very early stage, already in the second century. <coughs> uh, there, are, there is evidence of some translation going on. Particularly important, of course, in the fourth century, fourth into the fifth century, uh, was the translation of, uh, of the New Testament into Actually, it began as a revision of the Latin New Testament, of the Latin Bible. But it ended up as being almost a new translation, and this came to be known as the Vulgate. And the uh, uh, Christian father, Jerome, who was one of the very, very few Christians at the time who knew any Hebrew, and who was a, uh, quite a, a remarkable scholar, was responsible for the production of what came to be known as the Vulgate. Now, Vulgate meaning um, the popular. Uh, see, this was made so that everybody could read it. Ironically, in the course of the Middle Ages, uh, as the knowledge of Latin disappeared, the Vulgate became inaccessible to most people. And and then people were discouraged from eating, reading the, the Vulgate because, uh, or even to translate it because uh, they were afraid that the people would not be able to understand it. And so the authority of the, of the church as the interpreter sort of obscured, not sort of, but it obscured the actual functioning of the Bible. But originally when the Vulgate was produced it was for exactly the opposite purpose, not to keep it from the people, but to make it accessible to people because everybody, you know, at least in the western part of the Roman Empire, uh, read Latin. Inevitably, the existence of the uh, Vulgate became a very, very influential detail, if you will, in the, in the subsequent translation of the Bible. There were a number of translations of the Bible into more modern languages that depended heavily or even exclusively on the Vulgate. But at the time of the Reformation, one of the distinctive uh, events was the emphasis now on not depending on the Vulgate because that was not the original text, 
but going back to the original sources. You remember that the Reformation took place within the context of the Renaissance. And one of the distinctive features of the Renaissance and, and uh, humanism at, at, at that point was a concern to revive ancient literature so that people were paying a lot more attention to learning Greek and Latin, uh, Greek, not only Latin. And um, people realized, particularly the Protestant reformers, that if you really want to understand the New Testament, you'd better not depend on the Vulgate. But you, you go back to the original text. And so you, you begin to see a wave of translations directly from the Greek to the modern popular tongues. And so Luther becomes a very prominent figure here, translating the whole Bible into German. And uh, the Luther's Bible became almost, you, know, you, you can hardly assess how great the influence of this uh, translation was on the German-speaking people and even on the German language. It affected, influenced the language quite a bit. And um, there were many, many other projects, including, of course, into English, um, climaxing in, in the work of the uh, translators for King James. The, in English, uh, for the English-speaking uh, churches, uh, as you well know, the King James eventually established itself as the standard translation. Please be aware of the fact, if you're not, that when the King James translation first came out, it uh, was attacked just as severely as any modern version is attacked nowadays. Um, but after a while, people recognized its uh, qualities and uh, it became uh, established. And then for a couple of centuries, almost uh, nobody paid any attention to anything except the King James Version. At the end of the 19th century, already about the middle of the 19th century, people became more and more conscious of the need for a revision or even for a new translation from scratch. And uh, that led to a new movement, if you will. It's been only the past hundred years or so that the plurality and, and the um, large number of translations uh, has become a reality. Why? Because of, of many advances in our knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, uh, advances in our understanding of the culture, advances in our understanding of the transmission of the text, textual criticism. And um, inevitably, you are faced with a problem. The problem is that people, naturally, and, and how could you help it, begin to identify their faith with a particular expression of that faith. So that if this is what you have read all your life, especially if you have memorized lots of passages in a version, and now you're faced with a new version, I don't care who tells you that it's a better version, it sounds strange, and maybe it is even offensive if uh, in some passages the differences are very significant, and so inevitably you're going to have a clash. Um, now, if you want to turn over, uh, that's, that's what I have in my by contemporary issues, <clears throat> but if you turn over to uh, the next uh, page and um, we can focus these issues dealing with uh, matters of theory of translation. Uh, you can begin to see also what, um, what begins to transpire. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Who was there? Uh, no, because they, they were already uh, Latin translations. Uh, there was a need for a revision that, that uh, would make it more accurate and so on. Uh, so it was not the principle that, uh, that it was Latin, because that was already available. But um, to some extent, there was modernizing, and that may have been offensive. But I think it was more um, bringing the text closer to the original, that sort of thing, and so it, that would create differences. Well, it is different. Uh, 
the, the Latin of the Vulgate is what would be referred to as uh, the beginnings, well, not quite the beginnings, but uh, fairly early stage of ecclesi ecclesiastical Latin. And it certainly differs from classical Latin in some respects, yeah. But the language that people spoke and even wrote in at, at the time that the Vulgate was produced was not the Latin of, of Seneca anywhere. No, the Jerusalem Bible is a modern translation. Yeah. Th there's a variety of translations. One that I think uh, has become quite uh, popular is what is called the New American Bible. You want to distinguish that from the uh, American Standard Bible, which, it, which is a Protestant, uh, but the New American Bible is very popular. The Jerusalem Bible also is quite uh, popular. Um, I think the, the reasons were usually about the same that people, I mean, there's some people today who get very angry with the New International Version. And there are two reasons. One of them, it sounds strange. And, and people get worried about, you know, the, um, you know, if you don't have something standard that everybody has and they're memorizing the same thing, it creates problems. And it sounds, sometimes it sounds irreverent or at least not as dignified because people are used to the these and the thous or whatever. The other factor is, indeed, that any translation is going to be imperfect. And I don't care what translation you use, you, you can find, if, you're, if you start looking for problems, you're going to find them. Why they translate here but not there? And look at this idiom, it doesn't quite fit and so on. And so if someone is maybe predisposed to not having a new translation, you start looking for these problems and even errors, and then you can show, you see, the NIV is not reliable because there are all these problems. But of course, you can do the same tenfold with the King James Version. And, uh, and nobody's going to be fully satisfied. I'm involved right now with a Spanish NIV-like production. And I'm a member of the committee, and uh, you know there are dozens of places that I'm very unhappy with. Uh, but I still think that the final result is 50 times better than what is available right now. So yeah, inevitably, people are going to find some real, some only supposed problems, and that becomes the, the primary uh, issue. And I'll give some examples of that in a minute. Now, uh, by theory here, I'm talking about uh, theory of translation and uh, how your approach to Bible translating will be influenced by, by your theory, that is, by your basic framework as to what a translation ought to be, what the primary criteria uh, should influence you. And I think... You know, this is not a course on Bible translation, I'm, and, I'm, and this is a little bit simplistic perhaps, but I think there are these two primary problems that, that tend to clash. The um, advances in modern linguistics on the one hand over against the weight of tradition on the other. Modern linguistics, and, and modern linguistics is a rather well-defined term. We're talking about developments in language basically since about the 1920s that have made us a, a lot more conscious of the way language functions. And that linguists, that is people who are professionally um, occupied in the study of language as such. I'm not talking about an English teacher necessarily, although that might also be true, but you know, if you go to a department of linguistics, general linguistics is usually the term in a university. That's what I'm talking about. Um, the emphasis or the um, predominant approach is to realize that language is, is a very dynamic thing. So that when you're translating from one language to another, you have to keep in mind that a straight word-for-word -word translation, though it might appear to be a faithful approach, actually tends to distort the language. Now, anybody, I think, will accept that principle, at least in theory and at least in some examples. 
if, uh, if you're translating common day-to-day -day Spanish into English, and let's say somebody uh, says in Spanish, um, tengo frío en los pies, and you want to translate that into English, you would not translate, I have cold in my feet, but my feet are cold. Now that's just the idiomatic way in which the two languages differ. So what are you trying to do? Well, you're trying to communicate accurately the meaning of the phrase. And how do you do that? Well, by using the common way of expressing that idea. Because if you use an uncommon way of expressing it, it could either be misunderstood, namely that you have a cold and the cold somehow you know, is affecting your feet. I don't know. Uh, or it's going to sound strange. And if it sounds strange, you see, that's part of, of the meaning, if you will. Uh, you're changing the whole attitude of the speaker from using the common day-to-day -day language to something that, is, that sounds unusual and strange. Anybody will accept that. When you come to translating the Bible, however, there is a little bit of a resistance to that. Uh, linguists would say, look, think of it in this way. In ancient Greek, uh, Paul writes or says something, and it is understood in a particular way. When, you, when you're translating Paul into modern English, what you're after is trying to make sure that the, the uh, English speaker or reader reacts the same way to that English as the Corinthians, let's say, would have reacted to the Greek language. Uh, you want to preserve as much as possible the, the, character, the, the uh, precision of the message which comes in a particular form, and you want to use the form that is most natural to the so-called receptor language or the target language. But once you begin to do that, in the Bible especially, but this, this by the way, this uh, controversy also shows up in the translation of other documents. You will find people arguing over what is the best way to translate the Iliad or the Odyssey or whatever. Uh, some people say, try to modernize it as much as possible. Others say, no, you can't modernize it completely because part of the meaning is the old flavor, you see. Others go further and say you translate literally. So, so this is not a problem exclusively for Bible translation, but with the Bible, it is a special problem because of, of uh, the religious significance it has. Uh, part, and then especially for people who believe this is the word of God, you want to be even more careful and you want to make sure that, that you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if you have um, developed an identification, say, of the King James Version with God's word, then you feel like God's word, not just the King James translators, are being changed, you see. And that's where tradition comes in, uh, that the, uh, the resistance to changes in translation that people are not used to. Now, a good translator, I think, will want to be conscious of both of these. Because if you come up with a translation that is so divorced from tradition that people cannot even identify with it, you've, you've ruined your uh, project. Uh, you, you want to find some balance here, and that's very difficult. It's very difficult. Now, I want to give you a few examples of, um, of the, the way in which Bible translation um, creates difficulties and, and distinctions and controversies and whatever. And uh, I have found that one way which uh, is kind of useful, and you may want to do this yourself if you ever find yourself having to deal with this problem in a church or with individuals or whatever, is to ask yourself the question, all right, let's say I have two, two Bible translations in front of me. I'm, I'm going to see certain differences between the two. Why do these differences arise? 
And the answer is that there may be four different reasons, and those are the ones I have here in the outline. Maybe a textual problem, or an interpretive problem, or a matter of philosophy of translation, or merely a stylistic problem. Now, let's deal with each of these one by one with, with uh, some examples, and um, let's see if we can make sense of, um, of what's happening here. First of all, text. Remember when I was talking about the uh, changes in the pronunciation of Greek, and I talked about Romans 5.1, uh, having uh, been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, whatever. And I mentioned to you that because the Omicron and the Omega began to be pronounced the same, uh, you have a number of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament that instead of having echomen, the present indicative, we have, has the omega, which is the subjunctive, and which is translated, let us have, let us have. Now, you may come across this particular difference between two translations or others of a similar character where the difference is based on the fact that the translator, the translators have chosen a different text base. They have made a different, they have made a different decision as to what Paul wrote in the first place or dictated to Tertius, his uh, amanuensis at that time. That's textual criticism. And that will be our focus of attention beginning next week. And we'll pay a lot of attention to it, lots more than you wish we, we did. But um, we can discuss uh, the ins and outs of that problem when we get there. But at least be aware of the fact that one of the reasons Bible translations differ from one another is that they may, may make different decisions about what is the original text when there are differences among the manuscripts. Okay? A second reason for differences among Bible translations has to do with the interpretation of the text. Now, to give you a, a, an example that you may be familiar with, in uh, John chapter 5, Verse uh, 39, if you remember the King James, uh, the, the verb here is eraunate. And the King James translates, search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. That's an imperative. But there are some modern translations that, that uh, render this verb not as an imperative, but as an indicative. You search the scriptures because you think that you can find such and such. And, and then it goes from there. Now you see, this is not a textual difference because all the manuscripts have the same thing. In the previous examples, some manuscripts have an omicron, some have an omega. But here, that's, that's not a problem. The textual base is the same. But because this verb, this form of the verb, can be either imperative or indicative, the translator has to make an interpretive decision, which is the best way of understanding this particular uh, verb. And this sort of thing happens uh, from time to time. You have a similar problem in John 14. Um, you know, don't be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me, or is it believe in God and believe also in me? Or is it, you believe in God, believe also in me. See, all of those uh, could be either imperative or present. And they can all be defended. And, but a translator has to make a decision. You know, well, which are you going to choose? So you have a problem of interpretation. Uh, because you cannot translate unless you, you understand what you're saying, which means that you're interpreting it. 
Now, <clears throat> let's go to a third category. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, whatever you, um, whatever principles you use for interpreting, what fits the context better? Uh, you know, you go to a commentary and, and you will find a discussion of any time there's a difference of interpretation about a passage. Uh, you know, that's next semester, your course in hermeneutics. Uh, but usually, you know, what fits the context better? What does the writer use this term in other places? Which is the one that most likely he would have meant here? That kind of thing. And um, sometimes the decision is very easy. Sometimes it's very difficult. And... Um, that's why you're here in seminary. I think that's more the next category. Uh, maybe I should tell you, but I'm glad you asked the question because it, it made me realize that I, this is particularly a problem uh, when you go to the Old Testament, uh, especially in some passages that, that use archaic language, poetic archaic language like in Job and Proverbs and so on. And you come across a lot of Hebrew words that are hapax legomena. That's, you know, words that occur only once or maybe two or three times. And what do you do? Uh, sometimes the context makes it very clear. Sometimes it does not. And uh, most of the differences between the King James and some modern versions are going to be found in, in some of these difficult uh, pro passages in the Old Testament where the, uh, the information we have is relatively limited and uh, where scholars are still disputing the meaning of many of those words or certain grammatical forms and, and what have you. Um, so, um, you know, that's most frequently what you're going to find in, uh, in passages in the Old Testament, in the prophets as well from time to time. But now we come to this next uh, category uh, and, and this one we have to spend a little bit more time because it is related to what I was saying before about theory. Two translators may agree on the text and they may also agree on the interpretation of the text. But they have adopted different philosophies as to how you express this in the target language. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of how this shows up in, um, first of all, in the area of syntax, or just the way that you construct your sentence. In the Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 to 22. Um, you have a rather long sentence in Greek. And this is the way it is translated by the New American Standard Bible, which follows a, a, uh, what is known as a formal... I better start making a uh, distinction here. You can have a gradation uh, between an extremely literal translation on the one hand and a, a very, um, no, let's, um, let, let's use the more formal, uh, the, the standard terms here. At this end, we're going to put formal correspondence. At this end, and this is the other philosophy of translation, is what is often referred to as dynamic equivalence. But because the term dynamic equivalence has got a very bad press, uh, people now are using a different term, functional equivalence. But it's the same thing, dynamic or functional equivalence. Um, at the very extreme here might be a uh, translation such as, uh, what, what was the name of it? Confraternity, was that the name of it? 
it's a translation that is almost the sort of thing that you get when you look at a an interlinear, you know, and it's just word by word by word by word. Every genitive is translated the same way, and so on and so forth. Um, and at the other end might be a you know pure paraphrase type of translation. However. Um, without saying it is an extreme, but maybe somewhere around here, you have the New American Standard Bible, New American Standard Bible, which believes in a formal correspondence philosophy of translation. What that means is, for example, that you should, if you have a Greek word, let's say, and you choose a corresponding term in English, that you should consistently translate the Greek word with the same English word whenever possible. Now, you cannot do this all the time because then you get into some ridiculous things since the Greek word may have a variety of meanings. But as much as possible, they say, stick to the same word. The same is true in the way in which you put together a sentence. Try to preserve the form, for example, the word order or whatever, of the Greek. Whereas people on the other side, and a good example here would be the Good News Bible, you say, don't pay that much attention to the formal qualities of the language. Be primarily concerned with simplicity, what sounds natural, and only secondarily, only secondarily with the form. Now, let me give you the, the example from, from syntax uh, that I was talking about. In Hebrews 7, 20 to 22, I want to read to you the New American Standard Bible, if you can follow it. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, parentheses, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever, close parentheses, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of better covenant. Now most people, by the time they, they come to the end of the parenthesis, they have no idea what was the beginning of that comparative clause, you see. The NIV, on the other hand, what it does, it breaks things up. And it comes, comes out this way. And it was not without an oath, exclamation point. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. New sentence. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So by breaking up the, the, the one long sentence into three, but also by restructuring the way those, the clauses are related, the NIV comes up with something which is clear. Now, you know, there is room for some debate as to whether any, any part of the meaning has been affected by that, uh, and that's, that's part of the problem. Where, where do you draw the line in this kind of thing? Well, let's take a little break. I'll give you another example or two, and then uh, move on from there. <laughs>